0: Hey, great. You're still here. Thank you for sticking it out. I know Isaiah can be intimidating, but you've done well so far, and we're just about through. There will be one more chapter next week, but it is a very interesting and profound chapter, and then it's on with the Book of Mormon. This week, we have some very interesting stuff as well, though, so let's get right to it. Are asked to study 2 Nephi 20 through 25, which will take us through five chapters of Isaiah and then Nephi's words at the end. However, we're going to do it a little bit differently. Chapter 25 contains a very clear prophecy from Nephi that is basically a plain language version of all the things Isaiah said in chapters 20 through 24. So I think it would be very beneficial to us to study that chapter first. Get an idea of what Isaiah is trying to say, and then, with Nephi's words in mind, go through Isaiah's prophecies with a clearer understanding. So if you're okay with that, let's give it a try. At the beginning of chapter 25, Nephi starts right off explaining that Isaiah was hard for his people to understand too, just like us, and for the same reason. He says, Now I, Nephi, do speak somewhat concerning the words which I have written, which have been spoken by the mouth of Isaiah. For behold, Isaiah spake many things which were hard for many of my people to understand, for they know not concerning the manner of prophesying among the Jews. I think that the Old Testament in general is harder to understand than the New, but the book of Isaiah stands out in that regard. This is because... Once we get past the first five books of creation and law written by Moses, also called the Pentateuch, and establishing the terms of the covenant, the house of Israel made with the Lord, we then get into a pretty detailed history of the house of Israel from its liberation from Egypt all the way up to the end of the prophets in about 450 BC with the book of Malachi. And as a history book, the Old Testament does a pretty good job. We learn about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We learn about the 12 sons of Jacob and about his name being changed to Israel by the Lord. These 12 sons are the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel, which formed the house of Israel. Most of the Old Testament then reveals to us their travails in the desert and their attempts to establish a kingdom of their own after over 400 years in captivity to the Egyptians. We learn about David and Solomon, and then on through the Judges and all of Israel's ups and downs. But when we get to Isaiah, it becomes a different story. Isaiah's thrust is not about the history of the house of Israel, but about its future. His whole book is basically a prophecy, a revelation about the covenants Israel made and about its destiny, as well as the state that it is in that's getting it into the predicaments it's going to be in. And in this, he continually uses metaphor to illustrate his points. The overriding effort is to teach about and remind the people of the house of Israel of the covenant they made to Jehovah, the Abrahamic covenant, which would set them apart from the rest of the world. That covenant would bring wonderful blessings to the people eventually, but it would also bring great responsibility. Being the chosen people as they were did not mean that they were a special or of an elevated class or status deserving of special treatment and adoration. Rather, it meant that they were promised great blessings on an eternal scale, but in return, they were obligated, chosen to do the Lord's work as his special representatives on earth. But the Israelites had a problem. They were conditioned by years of slavery under the Egyptian thumb, and because of Pharaoh's absolute godlike rule, they had learned to take everything literally. Pharaoh was a god to the Egyptians. You could see him and hear him and observe that whatever he said was law. This was the king of kings and the earthly god they learned to obey. As a result... Moses, when he finally got them free, struggled continually to teach them about a God they could not see or hear or observe do his work. Because of this, Isaiah, when making his prophecies, had to continually use metaphors to illustrate his points. His considerable task was not only to teach the people about their relationship with God, as Moses had tried to do, but he also needed to teach them that the prophecies he spoke about were to be understood on a broader scale than just what they could see right there in front of them in the desert. But teaching them about a God they could not see was difficult, so he had to use metaphor and historical references to explain the relationships and interactions they would experience with their God over the years. For example, he referred to God as a mother hen and they as the chicks who would find refuge under her outspread wings. That they could understand. When he warned them of the consequences of disobedience to the terms of the covenant, he said that God would take down the protective hedges built up around them, thus exposing them to the ravages of their enemies. You will see this as you go through chapters 20 through 24. On the other hand, Nephi spoke as plainly as possible so that there could be no misunderstanding. He knew that his people would have a hard time understanding Isaiah. He reveals why that is right off by saying, For I, Nephi, have not taught them many things concerning the manner of the Jews, for their works were works of darkness, and their doings were doings of abomination." Nephi tells his people that Isaiah's words can be understood by those who are filled with the spirit of prophecy, which, by the way, does not mean that they were prophets, but rather that they can understand prophecy. But for those who can't, he is going to speak as plainly as he can. He says, but I give unto you a prophecy according to the spirit which is in me. Wherefore, I shall prophesy according to the plainness which hath been with me from the time that I came out of Jerusalem with my father. For behold, my soul delighteth in plainness unto my people, that they may learn. To my way of thinking, this exemplifies the whole Book of Mormon. Plainness is central throughout. We read a few weeks ago about the plain and precious things that were lost from the Bible. And Nephi And all of the Book of Mormon prophets seemed bent on presenting as much as they could in perfect plainness. I think right away of King Benjamin, who said simply, The natural man is an enemy to God and always has been and always will be forever and ever. That is as plain as you can get. None of this the unfaithful servant who failed to tend the vineyard adequately stuff. In the Book of Mormon, the prophets come right out and say what they mean. And so, in verse 7 of 2 Nephi 25, Nephi says, I proceed with my own prophecy according to my plainness, in the which I know that no man can err. Nevertheless, in the days that the prophecies of Isaiah shall be fulfilled, men shall know of a surety at the times when they shall come to pass. Now what he shares is a plain vision of the things which he has just read out loud to his people from the writings of Isaiah that were on the brass plates. It is important to him to read from Isaiah to show his people that he isn't the only one saying the things he's going to say. He knows that they don't understand the way Isaiah speaks, but that's okay with him. He will clear that up. So I'm thinking, if we read what Nephi says first and understand the message he is relaying, then we can go back and read Isaiah's words, which are quite poetic, and understand them much better. Much of Isaiah's message is concerning the destruction of the Jews from generation to generation as they continue to ignore the covenants they made with the Lord. And so, Nephi says this as clearly as he can. He says... And as one generation hath been destroyed among the Jews because of iniquity, even so have they been destroyed from generation to generation according to their iniquities. And never hath any of them been destroyed, save it were foretold them by the prophets of the Lord. See, they were all given a warning. Now, just a quick point here. This is only a few hundred years after the separation of the ten tribes from the kingdom of Judah. And so Isaiah's and Nephi's words are focused primarily on the Jews. And you can see that Nephi does not mince words here at all. He says, the Jews have been destroyed because of their iniquities, but have always been forewarned. I think that's pretty clear. Then he repeats his prophecy from earlier in 1 Nephi, where he foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. That destruction was all just occurring while his family was wandering in the desert. Now, however, it's forty or so years later, and that destruction is a fact. So here he mentions them being carried away into Babylon after Jerusalem was destroyed. He says, Wherefore it hath been told them concerning the destruction which should come upon them immediately after my father left Jerusalem. Nevertheless, They hardened their hearts, and according to my prophecy, they have been destroyed, save it be those which are carried away captive into Babylon. And then again we see him clearly and unambiguously declare, And now this I speak because of the Spirit which is in me, and notwithstanding they have been carried away, they shall return again and possess the land of Jerusalem. Wherefore, they shall be restored again the land of their inheritance. This is much of the message that Isaiah repeats over and over again, and not just him. We read this in Jeremiah, the prophet after him and the prophet at the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. Jeremiah said, for I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. That's pretty clear as well, but Nephi avoids the poetic plant them and not pluck them up. The Jews were taken away out of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and held captive for another 60 years before Cyrus the Great conquered Babylonia and took possession of the Jews. He issued an edict of restoration and directed that they be returned to their homeland. He even sent along architects and engineers to help in the reconstruction of the temple. This was an historic event, and Cyrus the Great is the only non-Jew to be declared as having been anointed by the Lord for his heroic deeds. But I think Isaiah and Nephi and Jeremiah are taking a longer view, a longer look into the future here. When Isaiah says in chapter 20 of Second Nephi, which is the same as chapter 10 in the Bible, And what will ye do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from afar? To whom will ye flee for help, and where will ye leave your glory? I think he is talking much further in the future. Much of his preaching was about the effects of the Jews rejecting their Lord when he came, and because of that rejection, they would be a scourge throughout most of their history. Nephi definitely refers to the restoration that Cyrus the Great initiated when he says, And notwithstanding they have been carried away, they shall return again and possess the land of Jerusalem. Wherefore, they shall be restored again to the land of their inheritance. But then he goes on in verse 12 of 2 Nephi 25 and says, But behold, they shall have wars and rumors of wars. And when the day cometh that the only begotten of the Father, yea, even the father of heaven and earth shall manifest himself unto them in the flesh. Behold, they will reject him because of their iniquities and the hardness of their hearts and the stiffness of their necks. Nephi's prophecy gets remarkably specific and detailed. He says, Behold, they will crucify him And after he is laid in a sepulchre for the space of three days, he shall rise from the dead with healing in his wings, and all those who shall believe on his name shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Wherefore, my soul delighteth to prophesy concerning him, for I have seen his day, and my heart doth magnify his holy name. True to form, Nephi is speaking with us as much plainness as he can. I don't think this could have been said any more clearly than this, and no one could reasonably mistake what he said. It took Isaiah several chapters to say all that, and indeed he did say it, but with many more words and with much more imagery. Here, look at this section from Isaiah 6, as found in 2 Nephi 16. And he said, Go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but they understood not. And see ye indeed, but they perceived not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and be converted, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he said, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, for there shall be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. I think these Isaiah verses that we're looking at here this week, chapters 20 through 24, are looking more towards the second coming and the end of the world, as they say, as opposed to the destructions and drama that accompanied the crucifixion. Nephi says in this rather long passage, And after they had been scattered, and the Lord God hath scourged them by other nations for the space of many generations, yea, even down from generation to generation, until they shall be persuaded to believe in Christ, the Son of God, and the atonement, which is infinite for all mankind, and when that day shall come that they shall believe in Christ and worship the Father in his name with pure hearts and clean hands and look not forward any more to another Messiah, then at that time the day will come that it must needs be expedient that they should all believe these things. And the Lord will set his hand again the second time to restore his people from their lost and fallen state. Wherefore, he will proceed to do a marvelous work and a wonder among the children of men. Wherefore, he shall bring forth his words unto them, Which words shall judge them at the last day? For they shall be given them for the purpose of convincing them of the true Messiah, who was rejected by them, and under the convincing of them that they need not look forward any more for a Messiah to come. For there should not any come, save it be a false Messiah, which should deceive the people. For there is save one Messiah spoken of by the prophets, and that Messiah is he who should be rejected by the Jews. That's a lot for just three verses, but you can see how concise Nephi is and how specific. In chapter 20, Isaiah says essentially the same thing, but he uses imagery for wars and battles that they knew and understood, and he equates future events to past occasions that they can relate to. As you read Isaiah's passages, you will see numerous references to people and places that have not any context for us today. Just realize that when he is saying, is not Calno as Carchemish and not Hamath as Arpad, is not Samaria as Damascus, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and to her idols? You see, Isaiah could just as well be saying, remember when I did that to them, it's going to be like that. We don't really need to know the relationship between Samaria and Damascus, although if you took the time to look that up, you might find an interesting story that would make this more interesting. But the point is, even though Isaiah is talking about the last days, something which still lies in front of us today, even if it has already started, he was talking to people of his time that needed some sort of context to understand what he was prophesying. Finally, in verses 21 and 22, he says, The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. Nephi's people, on the other hand, for the most part, did not understand those references any more than we do today, so Nephi just cut to the chase and told them what it was going to be like. He personally did know and even said, But behold, I of myself have dwelt at Jerusalem, wherefore I know concerning the regions round about, and I have made mention unto my children concerning the judgments of God, which hath come to pass among the Jews unto my children, according to all that which Isaiah hath spoken. But because he wanted to teach them as plainly as he could, without all the historical references, he simply says, And now, my brother, I have spoken plainly that ye cannot err. And as the God liveth that brought Israel up out of the land of Egypt, and gave unto Moses power that he should heal the nations after they had been bitten by the poisonous serpents, if they would cast their eyes under the serpent which he did raise up before them, and also gave him power that he should smite the rock and the water should come forth. Yea, behold, I say unto you that as these things are true, and as the Lord God liveth, there is none other name given under heaven, save it be this Jesus Christ of which I have spoken, whereby man can be saved. See, here we see that he did offer one historical perspective that we can basically all relate to. It seems everybody knew the story of Moses and the stinging serpents, which, by the way, is a subject of another of my podcasts, episode number 48, Moses and the Fiery Serpents. Now, before I go on with more of Second Nephi 25, let's take just a moment and look at more of the words of Isaiah to see if they make any more sense, now that we have a better perspective on them. All of chapter 21 should seem pretty clear to you, but here's just a sample. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. Or how about this? He shall set up an ensign for the nations that shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. An ensign is a flag, and a flag represents a kingdom. This verse is saying that when the Lord returns, he will establish his kingdom, and the gathering of Israel will be completed. In chapter 22, he says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation, and in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. In chapter 23 we read, And I will punish the world for evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay down the haughtiness of the terrible. every one that is proud shall be thrust through, yea, and every one that is joined to the wicked shall fall by the sword. yea, for I will be merciful unto my people, but the wicked shall perish. And then, as we get to the end of this part of Nephi's sermon and reading of Isaiah. He says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob, and will yet choose Israel, and set them in their own land, and the strangers shall be joined with them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. And the people shall take them and bring them to their place, yea, from far unto the ends of the earth, and they shall return to their lands of promise. And the house of Israel shall possess them, and the land of the Lord shall be for servants and handmaids, and they shall take them captives unto whom they were captives, and they shall rule over their oppressors. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from the hard bondage wherein thou wast made to serve. This is a wonderful promise for the house of Israel and all of us who belong to it. And I think that with the perspective we've been discussing, that was easy enough for all of us to understand. But then Isaiah has one more powerful thing to say, and I love it. He says, speaking to the devil, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And then I love this part. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee, and shall consider thee, and shall say, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? In other words, he's saying, Are you the measly little twerp who wrought all of this mayhem and destruction and sin and torment and unhappiness? What a great put down! Or as the kids today would say, Ooh, burn! It seems to me that if we understand the context of what Isaiah was trying to say, then the actual words he used are much easier to understand. He had to tailor his teachings to the people he was speaking to, and they were literalists. Everything had to be put in terms that they could see and understand with their experience. That we didn't have the same experiences as they means that we are sometimes left in the dark as to what Isaiah was trying to talk about. We do not know what he was referring to when he mentions Carchemish or Calmo. We generally don't have any historical perspective on Syria and Assyria. Most of us don't even know the difference between the two, and certainly not what they meant to Israel. Sadly, we let these things block us from studying, from really studying the words of Isaiah. And that's a shame, because his words have just as much meaning and impact to us today as they did 2,700 years ago. Many of those words have already been fulfilled, which should only stand as a witness and a testimony to his prophetic power. But others are yet to come to pass, and for that reason, we should look to his words for hope and strength. Now, one last part to go over before I leave you today. Nephi finishes his words talking about the law of Moses, and this is very profound. He puts the Law of Moses into a perspective that we find nowhere else. I did a podcast episode on this also. It was episode number 14, The Law of Moses. He shows what the true and real intent of the Law of Moses was and is. Most of us think of the Law of Moses as the rules for orderly living, and indeed the fundamentals of it are good for that. However, it was so much more involved in the early days. And while those rituals and sacrifices are no longer observed, yet it was their purpose that held the primary reason for the law in the first place. You see, the law of Moses was not the original intended law for the house of Israel. It was not what Moses brought down from the top of the mountains. When he came down from Mount Sinai, he had with him the higher law, the law we call today the law of Christ, governed by the Melchizedek priesthood. However, they rejected that law, and so, in his wrath, the Lord took it away from them and gave them a law of performances and ordinances, a law of carnal commandments that would teach them about their Savior and how to recognize him at his coming. Unfortunately for the Israelites, they made the law a thing of worship, rather than the Lord it was trying to teach them about. And it is because of that that they were able to use the very law designed to teach them how to recognize their Lord to instead crucify him in apparent defense of that law that they thought he was breaking. But Nephi knew better and had taught his people better. They knew to whom they should look for their salvation, and they looked forward to his coming. Listen to Nephi's words here, for we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children, and also our brethren to believe in Christ, and to be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved, after all we can do. And notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses, and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. For for this end was the law given. Wherefore, the law hath become dead unto us, and we are made alive in Christ because of our faith. Yet we keep the law of Moses because of the commandments. And we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. Wherefore, we speak concerning the law, that our children may know the deadness of the law, and they, by knowing the deadness of the law, may look forward unto that life which is in Christ, and know for what end the law was given. And after the law is fulfilled in Christ, that they need not harden their hearts against him when the law ought to be done away. It's pretty self-explanatory here, but let me recap anyway. Nephi is saying that the law of Moses was given to teach the children of Israel how to recognize their Lord when he came. And since the Nephites already know to look for him, the law had no more it could teach them. And Nephi understood that simple adherence to a law, in this case, the law of Moses, was not enough to bring salvation to his people. They would need the atonement and the grace that came with it to save and exalt those who demonstrated true faith and true righteousness rather than just simple obedience to a set of rules. When he says, We teach our children to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. For for this end the law was given, wherefore the law hath become dead unto us. Why? Because we already believe in Christ and we already look forward to his coming. Everything we read today about the Jews in particular was concerning their unbelief and the fact that only in the last days would they come to know their Savior. Isaiah was a pretty smart guy, and he undoubtedly saw his day, and the day of the Lord's advent upon the earth, and our days leading up to his second coming in glory, and the salvation of the house of Israel. Well, Nephi said it about as well as it can be said. He quoted Isaiah to show his people and us that these prophecies he spoke of existed before him and those prophecies were still enforced then as they are now. The words of Isaiah are powerful and I promise you that if you read them slowly and carefully you will feel their power as Nephi did. And Nephi's thoughts on the law of Moses should give us pause as well. We cannot get by on just simple obedience to a set of do's and don'ts and hope for exaltation. We need to look beyond the law of Moses to the law of Christ. And we need to understand that it is what we carry in our hearts that will lead us to where we want to end up in the next life. Do not be like the Jews. Do not wait until the second coming to finally realize that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Turn to him now and enjoy the fruits of his word in your life. I promise you will be blessed and so much happier. And of this I bear testimony. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I'm Mark Swint. Thank you for listening.